And tonight, one of our forays into the nature of the English language, particularly as it is changing constantly underfoot, even as we try to speak it correctly. My two guests tonight are both eminent lexicographers. Erin McKean is the senior editor for the New Oxford, New, New Oxford American Dictionary. She's also the editor of the new book, More Weird and Wonderful Words, that follows her earlier book, Weird and Wonderful Words. And that has just been published, the second one has, by Oxford University Press. John Morse is the president and the publisher of the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, which is just out in its 11th edition. Good evening. Good evening. Now that we've established that you're here, let me start with an epigraph from uh, none other than Geoffrey Chaucer. And I'm going to do it in my uh, very well-known uh, uh, rendering of Middle English. And for there is so great diversity in English and reading of our tongue so pray I God that nun misrita thee, nay thee mismetra for default of tongue. And read where so thou be, or elis sunga, that thou be understonda, a good besager. Which in translation is, and because there is such a great diversity in English and in the writing of our tongue or our language, I pray to God that none will miswrite you, will write you wrong. Uh, nor nay thee mismetra for the of tongue, nor, nor mispronounce you because of a failure of the tongue. And wherever you are read, or elsewhere you are sung, uh, that you be understood, I beseech God. Uh, he's already aware in the 14th century that the language is changing and people are misusing it. That's still the case, is it not? Well, people are using the language all the time, but misuse is sometimes in the, the ear of the hearer. But for old Geoffrey Chaucer, some were misusing it, and he was concerned with that. And for that matter, I come armed with quotations tonight. I offer you... Samuel Johnson, the first of the great uh, lexicographers in the English language. You will both agree, will yes, you not? Yes, oh, absolutely. And you're, I'm sure you know this famous quotation. Uh, it's in the Rambler, a Rambler essay in which he's describing what he's doing as a lexicographer. I have labored to refine our language to grammatical purity and to clear it from colloquial barbarisms, licentious idioms, and irregular combinations. Yes. Well, I, I think that was very much a concern at, at the 18th century. I think there was still a little bit of a inferiority complex amongst people of, who were speaking English. It had only been a few hundred years that it really had been even the official court language. So I, I think that they had a little bit of inferiority complex, which I think now, obviously, we have, we have shrugged mm. off and, and rather uh, I think we have come to enjoy and, and revel in, in the many different kinds of strains that come into the language. And we revel in the fact that the language is always changing, do we? Changing every, every second, almost. And that's what's uh, evident in, and that's what's treated in your book, Weird and Wonderful Words, and now the new, more weird and wonderful words. On the very cover, I see uh, Reculmont, um, Dromagnathus, <laughs> Icterical, Drumblebee, um, and um, Pusnuzzle. I don't know any of those, though I can make attempts at deciphering them. Well, that's what the, there's a cartoon. I, I actually bet the illustrator, Danny Shanahan, that he couldn't use, I think it's pronounced dromoagnathius. Yeah. It means having a palate like that of an emu. Of course. Yes. <laughs> I thought I thought this is, was a wonderful word, but one that you would never, ever get a chance to use unless you had, a, say, a pet emu or studied emus. 
but he drew a picture of an emu enjoying a glass of wine, so he won the bet. I, if if I had been just confronted with that without any preparation, Dromo Agnathus, I would have guessed it has something to do with camels because there's a kind of camel and there's a dromedary, but that isn't it at all. No, I don't think it has anything to do with camels. Yeah. It's a very rare word. But I am, I, you know, I'm one of the older guys, and I confess that I'm bothered, by the way, some of the things that I see happening. And I asked you, mm-hmm. just before we came on the air, uh, you both have your computers with you, um, and I asked you your, uh, to look up a particular word, which is common in the English language, notorious. Notorious has always meant, to me, um, well known for some disagreeable or disliked quality. If you're notorious, you're known because you're bad, or because you're evil, or because you're uh, unattractive for one reason or another. But I hear the word used simply to mean famous. Right. Uh, he is a notorious football star. Right. And it's not clear right off the bat, I mean, maybe Aaron can, can fill us in a little more on this, about which is the original sense. But certainly from the etymological sense, uh, we're going back to a root that simply does mean knowledge. So, um, what, what is the etymology of the word notorious? Um, I think Aaron's got the right I've entry up right here, here, but there's a, there's a French word, notoriété, um, and, and that's going back into medieval Latin. I think as we get back into Latin, I just smell that knowledge root in there someplace, and I'm not going to... Aaron can... It uh, does come from a Latin word meaning intelligence or information, oh. and it's related to a word meaning known. Mm-hmm. Well, so that it took on a different meaning in English, which wasn't really part of its meaning in the derivative... Uh, the languages of origin. Well, the citation dates switch back and forth early on between the well-known meaning mm-hmm. and the well-known for something bad meaning. The The first citation used about facts is from 1555, and that's just a well-known. It's his courage was such and his facts so notorious. Oh. And then the first citation under something that's notorious for being bad is from 1548. So there's not a big gap there. So very possibly you've got both uses of the word right from the beginning. And what often happens with, with, with words is they'll take on either um, a more pejorative sense or a less pejorative sense. Uh, they will broaden in their meaning or they will contract in their meaning. But just because one sense comes along doesn't necessarily eclipse the other. Uh, and that's really how English gets its richness and how words get their nice nuances and, and connotations because... Uh, maybe both senses exist side by side. You hear a little echo of one when you're using the, the other sense. Now, here, here's another, because one is aware of the language changing. Uh, if you've lived long enough, you, you hear the uses of words in a way that you wouldn't have used them when you were coming to consciousness or coming to linguistic uh, uh, competence. I said to the sports guys before us uh, on the air just tonight when I introduced the program, I said, we're going to, what's wrong with the following sentence? We're doing a rather unique program tonight. And they didn't quite get it. Right. Uh, right. What's wrong with rather unique? The unique is, is held to mean one of a kind. Yeah. So you're either unique or you're not unique, but there's no degree it's of It's a unique. yes or no proposition. Yes. And no. And no, because I think that other sense, again, I mean, a word broadens or contracts, mm-hmm. and it can have an, a closely related meaning, which is not absolutely the only one, but very distinctive. But uh, unique used to mean it's it's a singularity. These days it means, well, it's rather, ex- it's exceptional, but it can have degrees of exceptionality. Right, 
Right. But I, what I, my supposition is, and again, I'm going to defer to, to Aaron, and who's got some data citations there, that that other sense um, was around uh, hundreds of years. So you would have to have been born maybe in 1602 not to have um, grown up with the sense of unique meaning very distinctive. Hmm. Uh, so old meanings have come back again is what you're saying. Or well, I think they can do. happen. They yeah. certainly can happen. Um, uh, I think uh, sort of famously we've been um, recently talking about disinterested and uninterested. And there's really a case where the two words actually crisscrossed each other in their early years. Uh, if, if you go back to about the 17th century, you see um, disinterested meaning lack of interest and uninterested meaning impartial. And what happens is they actually exchange meanings with one another. And then what happened more recently is that disinterested has reclaimed that early meaning that it once lost. So it now has two meanings, its original one and its newer one. Uninterested, I think, really has just stayed with its crossover meaning. How then does one account for the success and the, uh, and the appeal of those guardians of the sacred flame of linguistic purity? Uh, who write in the common press. I think of uh, Sapphire in the Times on Sundays. I think mm -hmm. of John Simon. Mm -hmm. uh, and who was it? Um, nice fellow who did a lot of broadcasting, Edward Newman. Mm -hmm. uh, Edwin Newman. Edwin Newman mm -hmm. some years ago. All of whom had wonderful fun right. uh, taking contemporary language and ridiculing it because right. it didn't have right. the real meaning of the proper the proper meaning of the words. Mm -hmm. Well, I, mean, I think we all have a fascination with language, and we all, I think, develop a taste for language. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that what what those individuals uh, did and and did in an absolutely entertaining way was express their their taste in language, and and one could share it or not share it. And, and obviously, in in many ways, we would, I think, often did share it. But they did more than that. They condemned those who used they, they did, the and, language to mean something other than what they took it to be right and I and I think that's probably where I would take some exception with what they did I think there's a that language really is is a two-way street and communication is a two-way street and I think we often would be better served if we would put more effort in trying to understand each other's language than condemning each other's language but I think that was part of the art form, and, and it has incident. I mean, it was part of the art form really since the 19th century, when, when some of the old um, hard-boiled journalists uh, like William Cullen Bryan really mm -hmm. invented the, the genre of critiquing language with his index expurgatorius from the New York Tribune. There's always been an, uh, uh, an acid touch to linguistic commentary. You're makers of dictionaries. That's what a lexicographer does. You work with colleagues, but you're both very much interested in putting together a guide to the proper use of the language and to the complexities of the language and to the origins of the words uh, and the constructions that we presently employ. Uh, you would agree, wouldn't you, that the first major lexicographer for English was the aforementioned Dr. Samuel Johnson? He's certainly the brilliant star. There were dictionaries of English before yeah. Johnson, but he was he made lexicography brilliant and sparkling well as much as it is anyway and he is the lexicographer that really brought it to people's attention that this wasn't just a book like many earlier dictionaries were for students and women and other people of limited understanding which is what a lot of dictionaries advertise themselves to be he made dictionaries for everyone he also has some fun doesn't he in, 
in the de definitions of some words. Well, yes, he does. And we're going to have to get the dirty laundry out <laughs> sooner or later. Samuel Johnson's famous definition of lexicographer was a harmless grudge. Um, and we have we have worn the the title of harmless drudge with with good humor most of the time uh, ever since. And his definition of uh, well, one of the famous ones is his simple definition of oats, <laughs> which uh, in in most of England is generally food for horses, but in Scotland is the chief sustenance of the people or something <laughs> like it. that. Yeah, that's it. Um, and a patron. Do you remember that one? I, I don't. What what I recall that goes back to Lord Chesterfield. Is is his most famous line that I that I will love him forever for. He had gotten a definition wrong for one of the parts of a horse's leg. I think oh, yes. he had called the pastern the, the I forget, the but he had the hawk or something like that. And and someone came up and just challenged him and said, Doctor Johnson, how could you possibly get that wrong? And he said, Ignorance, madam, simply ignorance. Yes. <laughs> How does one put together a dictionary these days? I've been up to the attic at Johnson's uh, house just off Fleet Street. I imagine both of you have been there. Yes. Uh, where he had uh, some six or eight other drudges doing a good deal of the work under his supervision. Remember that room is rather low ceiling, and you just have a sense that it would have been very arduous labor, and it went on for years. But that, how does one compose dictionaries today? Well, with a lot of computers. And it's it's almost like bug hunting now. It's it's a natural science almost because all of the common everyday bugs have mostly been found and and pinned to pieces of cotton and glass cases. And sometimes you get some variation in the bug species. Words take on a different part of speech or they're used in a slightly different way. But now we're kind of trekking into the deep dark Amazon to get the really exotic bugs and seeing if there are enough of each species to warrant their catalog. But in, in the making of a dictionary you also have many more people working with you or for you than Johnson had, don't you? Yes, well Johnson really did the job virtually single-handedly and I don't think any dictionary maker would ever try to do that again. At, at Merriam-Webster we had a a uh, staff of about 60 editors who are working on the new edition of the Collegiate Dictionary. And, uh, but of course, by doing that, we also were able to produce it in less than two years. And I uh, think poor Dr. Johnson took a good deal uh, longer than Only that. Only 60, or are there other people out there in the world who are also feeding in material? For we you? pretty much um, are self-contained. We pretty much rely <laughs> on our own ongoing evidence, and to that degree, in some ways, we resemble Dr. Johnson in mm -hmm. that uh, we still, while much of what we do is assisted by a computer, uh, we live in the same welter of little slips of paper, just like Dr. Johnson. Um, only even more so to when we were creating the uh, 11th Collegiate, we probably looked at over a million separate little slips of paper. Uh, where, to, are the, where do the slips of paper come from? Well, the slips of paper actually get printed out from the database. So, so Aaron is right, we are assisted by computers. Mm -hmm. But it, it turns out that when you actually sit down to, to write a dictionary, uh, it often helps to have the little slips of paper to move around and, and make little piles. And, but then the great question is, where do the new words come from? Both of you in the work that you've done and in the dictionaries you work with are very aware of and you preside over the uh, the routinization or the legitimation of words that weren't in the last edition but now appear. New words come, I think, from the same places that they've always come from. It's just the people using those new words have many more opportunities now to get them places where we'll see them. Um, bloggers 
these are all people who would have only used those words in conversation around the water cooler, and now they're writing them on the Internet for, you know, maybe six people read them, but most of them are searchable. Well, what's, what's the method? Uh, how do you find new words and decide that this is worth inclusion in the dictionary? I don't think we're ever going to find all of them, but words... Words have a habit. The words you want to find have a habit of bringing themselves to your attention. There's a, there's a new word for a new element. They've just decided on the name for the latest element. It's going to be Darmstadtium. I think that's how it's pronounced. And in a week, I saw Darmstadtium. It must go to the city of Darmstadt in mm -hmm. Germany, does it? Yes. Uh, I think there was a little controversy over who was actually going to get to name it. So mm -hmm. um, in a week, Darmstadtium presented itself to me 12 times. And so I wait, don't stop, read stop, a lot of chemicals. Stop right there. Presented <laughs> itself to you. How? I saw it in The New Scientist. Oh. I saw it online in several different places. And I don't read a lot of very scientific material mm -hmm. online. Uh, I think that someone sent me an email saying, hey, they named Darmstadtium. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> a lot of things just, well, a, a chemical, a new chemical element is, of course, very important. But also... Uh, I'm trying to think of what else presented itself to me. You trip over them sometimes. A dictionary is not a thesaurus, but it has thesaurus qualities. It has synonyms for all sorts of words. At the moment, I've got to do something I do every night, and I do it five or six times. I've got to pause for commercials. And I usually say, we'll be right back after these messages or after these commercials. Can you give me some other words that will do the same? For for commercials or being right back? No, for commercials. For commercials. You say dispatches. A, a message from our sponsors. Well, yeah, but we use them. We, we do that too. Yeah. I want something a little bit more novel. Uh, communique. Some commercial communiques. Uh, communiques uh, are coming down and upon us, and we will return right after those. And we return to conversation with two leading lexicographers, Erin McKean is a senior editor for the new Oxford American Dictionary, and she's the author of the new book, More Weird and Wonderful Words, just published by Oxford University Press. And John Morse is the president and publisher of the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. You have other products as well. Yes, we that's do. That's the one that we're talking about tonight, especially that's just been published in its 11th edition. It's either Heraclitus or Democritus. I truly can't remember which of the two who said... Uh, dynamis dios macrocosmos, which in translation is change is the life of the universe. Nothing holds still. Things are always uh, dynamic, always changing. And that's certainly true of language. Absolutely. And therefore you represent that in the continuing and succeeding editions of your dictionaries. So what's new in the American version of the English right. language? Well, you're, you're quite right. I mean, we just, uh, when we brought out this new edition, uh, we went through and reviewed every piece of evidence that we had collected for the past 10 years, and we come up with 10,000 new words and new definitions of words. Since the last edition, which was how many years ago? 10 years ago. Uh -huh. uh, with yearly, with, with minor yearly updates in between. So mm -hmm. we had been adding some words every year, but when you do a complete cover-to-cover -cover revision, you really, uh, you turn up um, not only just the, the big uh, words that, that people might think of, but sort of the headline grabbers like dot-com or, or Botox or LASIK, 
but also some of the, the smaller changes that are going on, the kind we've been talking about earlier, the little movements uh, in the meaning of a word like esoteric. Or, Already established words which, which are shifting in meaning. Right, right. Has esoteric shifted well, in meaning? Well, yes, esoteric has taken on a, a broader meaning from uh, that we're recognizing for this new edition, which is simply difficult to understand. Now, if you look at the, sort of the roots of esoteric, all in, in its beginnings, uh, it means really sort of restricted to the specially initiated alone, mm -hmm. and then maybe it means as as contrasted to exoteric, <laughs> which is available for the multitude. I guess so. Yeah. Um, and and then it, it it means that sort of known to a very few number of people, maybe not specially initiated of interest, but then simply too difficult to understand. So we're watching those little changes as well as I say the kind of headline grabbers like we see in health in medicine and electronic technology. But what are some of the headline grabbers? What does Botox actually mean? Well, Botox is a trademark for uh, an, an injectable material yeah. that should take the wrinkles out of your Puffs face. Puffs you up. Yes. Yeah. And how does, one, how does one use that in a sentence? Uh, well, you can be injected with Botox, yeah. and you can be, you can, it's used as an adjective sometimes, too. That actress is so Botoxed, she can't even express uh -huh. any emotion. Now, when did that appear in the language? More or less when the product was was marketed, I suppose. Right. So yes. in the 1990s. So it's it's a relatively new uh, yeah. appearance in the language. Dazzle me with new words. What else do you have? Well, I just wanted to tell you quickly that your use of exoteric yeah. has a citation from 1655. Ah. So in that meaning of available knowledge what's available the, for what's everyone. What's the citation? Uh, the discourse and doctrine which Aristotle delivered to his disciples was of two kinds. One he called exoteric. Mm-hmm. So, for everyone. Who, who are we quoting here? Stanley, from the History of Philosophy. Lovely. The 1701 edition. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I, I read that <laughs> in my formative years, of course. Um, health and medicine gave us a lot, also LASIK. Um, what's, what's interesting in, in the area of health and medicine is how many of the words coming into the dictionary aren't actually new words. They are mm -hmm. words that have been around for maybe 100 years, but used only by specialists. And now we're seeing as the baby boomers getting older is bringing a lot of medical vocabulary associated with aging. I've got a curious one, which I truly do not understand. It's being used in ways that I do not uh, quite comprehend. Um, and I'm going to give it to you right now. It's anal, A-N-A-L. Now, of course, that refers to the anus. But in Freudian theory, it's a character type given to parsimony and kind of uh, compulsive rigidity uh, and aggressiveness. Uh, but I find there's some weird woman who keeps calling me and leaving sort of poison pen uh, messages on our voicemail, criticizing me usually for being not Jewish enough when we talk about things concerning the Middle East. And she recently um, assaulted me, and I don't know who she is, but by saying, Milt, what's wrong with you is you're too anal. Well, and, and you have... And there's a, there's a modern meaning for that that yes. I don't quite get. Well, no, you have it, you have it just about um, uh, to the letter of relating to, characterized by, or being personality traits as parsimony, meticulousness, and ill humor. Yeah, well, that's the old meaning. Uh, considered typical of fixation at the anal stage of development. Well, I suspect she That's Freud's characterology, but it's right. taken on a newer colloquial meaning, I think. I think that this meaning is a shortening of the term anal retentive, which yeah. we have defined as excessively orderly and fussy. And so we go on to parenthetically say supposedly owing to conflict over toilet training in infancy. Yeah, well, that's still that's the so. Freudians. But it's there's there's another meaning that's come uh, that, that's somehow now circulating out of a misunderstanding or a loose 
Uh, I actually, I think, I think Aaron is. My sense is is very consistent with what Aaron said. I think that it is used as much um, as the shortening for anal retentive, and I think you are probably being um, taking the task for frugality and obstinacy. Um, no, her, the the tenor of the the full poison of telephone message, which I could even play for you if I could find it, but that would be against mm -hmm. the law since this anonymous creature keeps sending me these poison telephone messages. Um, but uh, the, impl the import of her condemnation in that little phone thing, which I've saved on my voicemail, is that I'm too weak and too pusillanimous and not strong enough in condemning that which I should condemn. So that's a different sort of meaning. I, I think, think. Sh I think that is inconsistent with the general... With the definitions you give. And yeah. also, I think of, of general usage. I think the, the most you might get, it would be uh, rigid and mm -hmm. uh, stubborn and... Un unbending, uh, but pusillanimous does not fit with any sense of I would of, think not of anal that well, I've heard. Farewell that farewell that particular question. It's not all that important, but I've been meaning to try to seek some clarification on that. But that leads me to a larger thing. Uh, Psycho babble has really produced uh, some vocabularistic innovation in our language as we presently use it. I think so. I think that there's a general tendency now to broaden what used to be diagnoses mm -hmm. into descriptions mm -hmm. of character traits. Um, I've heard people described as OCD as an adjective, meaning obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, people have, who are not, in fact, schizophrenic have been called schizo for years. Any kind of... Um, I've also heard people who thankfully do not suffer from Asperger's syndrome, uh -huh. I've heard Asperger being used as an adjective for people who are, um, in the UK they have a term for it, uh, anorak. There's also a Japanese term that I can't remember. It's, it's anyone who's really super interested in a topic that not very many people are interested in mm -hmm. and who tend to bore others around them with their enthusiasm. But in a related way, I mean, the words like invest and, and issue, which I think come to this oh. psycho babble thing where we take some common English words and, and load on some, some additional things. So to be committed becomes to be in, he's not wholly vet invested in, in his family. Or no, issue. I have issues with that. that I, the, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because that really bugs me when I encounter it. Issue means questions that need to be resolved. Their issues are on an agenda. Both issue and agenda come to figure out have alter their meaning. Issues means I've got complaints or I've got I have things problems. that bug me or right. problems. Right. And for that matter, agenda means not a list of things that need to be discussed at the board meeting, but rather mm -hmm. uh, secret purposes right. which uh, the person with the agenda is pursuing right. as he tries to deceive you and manipulate you. Right, that's right. And I have to say, those are the, the tough ones for lexicographers to keep track of as well, because... What, the do, only... what, what do you do with agenda in your present dictionaries? Um, do, you, do, you, do you have this extra meaning, a secret purpose, uh, by which one is it? Well, again, that's probably, I mean, someone came up with the phrase hidden agenda at one point, yeah. and then it's not too much of a, a jump to say, well, if there's a hidden agenda, they just stop saying hidden, uh. and so we get on to uh, agenda. But our, our most recent meaning is an underlying, often ideological plan or program. Mm -hmm. um, so you're adapting to that change in right, the language. Right, So, uh, What does the Oxford do with that? It has... Um, Mostly we have just the things to be done list of such items. Mm -hmm. I think we have that meaning of the, the hidden agenda meaning under hidden agenda as a... Uh, 
So I think the, the hidden agenda meeting probably gave birth to yeah. the, the agenda meeting. That and the might... hidden agenda is only been, that phrase, uh, meaning sort of an ulterior motive, uh, we only date back to the early 1970s. So you do have a fairly recent... Do you, uh, have, a, do you have a citation on it? I do not have that, that citation. Uh, by, by Back in 1971, mm -hmm. we were still on paper, and I didn't bring all 15 I million of I our know, paper citations. I would make a prediction as to where it came from. Well, in 1971, you can, can't you? I mean, that... that I think it comes from the Research Center for Group Dynamics at the University of Michigan, at which I worked as a graduate student. Uh, they were people who were very busy uh, elaborating a theory based upon the work of Kurt Lewin concerning how you do effective conferencing. And they were using the term hidden agenda as something which can disrupt a meeting and prevent coming to consensual sharing and consensual decision. Aha, uh -huh. that, that could well be. Um... I mean, that, that's consistent only with, with his research. I don't know what, whether Aaron has found a... I have found a citation, but it, the one I have right now is from the from a UK source. Yeah. I'm looking for one from an American source because I think... What's the UK source say? It says, uh, John Smith accused the government of having a hidden agenda whereby its promises to improve public services while cutting rate of income tax could only be funded by a further half percent increase in the VAT. And that's who speaking when? <laughs> I'm trying to find that out. It's a little far away. Yeah. I think this is probably from uh, one of the broadsheet UK newspapers. Mm -hmm. It has that ring to it. Of course, this is the process that's going on all the time. Yes. It's going you know, on, on a thousand different dimensions. A thousand different dimensions, which is why I was saying we, it takes about 10,000 changes to mm -hmm. go into a new edition of the dictionary. And, and the only way you can get that to sort of get to one of your other questions, how do you do this, is you just have to monitor the language every single day. And when we have editors who are reading books and magazines and newspapers every single day, looking for those interesting uses of words that might mm -hmm. indicate um, that, that the meaning is shifting a little bit. Uh, because those really turn out to be those are the kinds of words people really are interested in. That's, those are the words that send people to their dictionaries to say, I don't understand this new sense of paradigm, or I don't understand this new sense of, of uh, caveat. Um, and people get confused by that, and so we're tr we try to monitor that very carefully. It was, um, who was it that used caveat as a verb for the first time? Somebody in American politics. Yes, it was... Um, General, what's his name? Yes, yes, it was the chief of staff um, in the White House yeah. under Nixon's White House, and why can't we think of his name? I even had him on this program, and I was. He was. On his he's name. also famous for the one um, while the uh, when the resignation was was mm -hmm. no. He was also on the on the Reagan staff and was famous for the one saying, "I'm in charge here That's now right. at the White House." Haig. Hey. General Haig, Alexander, Alexander Haig. Yes, exactly. and I believe he yeah. said, I want to caveat that. Right. Well, there's a citation for verb sense. It's marked as being obsolete now. Uh, from 1661, from the Marquis of Argyle. <laughs> so, Who said what? He said, I would caveat this. So he anticipated General Haig. By, by several centuries. Isn't that wonderful? I would say I think that that verb had fallen into disuse for several <laughs> centuries before Al Haig came along. But obviously he was channeling a, a marquee <laughs> sensibility. A marquisan? Years ago we did half an hour on this program when we were doing a Shakespeare uh, program. 
And I raised the question of, gee, Shakespeare was kind of ungrammatical, wasn't he? He could uh, have um, Mark Antony say, examining the body of the assassinated Julius Caesar, here stabbed Brutus. That was, this was the most unkindest cut mm -hmm. of all. Mm -hmm. Two superlatives. Right. The most unkindest. But uh, my guest um, was an English professor from the University of Chicago, uh, was able to give me a reference, give me a citation, in which that was used even before Shakespeare. That's the glory of really good writers, is that they can break the, the rules, yeah. as most people know them, and really get away with it. If everyone followed the rules exactly all the time, English would be Esperanto. There'd be no changes, there'd be no real poetic sensibility. It's only when you stretch the boundaries that you really get the, the, the ear-catching and mm -hmm. the eye-catching phrases. I first began to resonate to poetry when I ran across, I forget now even, even who the poet was, but a line which went, and I was a kid of 12 or 13, which said, I tremble with the impact of soft pictures. I didn't understand that. And I went to my mother with that and said, what is that? In soft an impact, it, mm -hmm. there's something wrong there. Mm -hmm. And though she didn't know the poem, and English wasn't her native language, in fact, mm -hmm. but she said, that's poetry. There's that's something beautiful there. poetry. Very do, you, beautiful. do you like that phrase? Oh, I do. The I impact of soft pictures? That's wonderful. I'm still not sure what it means. <laughs> but, it, but it remains in memory somehow. It points to a paradox. Yes, it does point to a paradox. Something gentle can leave a deep imprint. Yes, absolutely, yeah. which is, that, that's a beautiful phrase. Yeah. Uh, speaking of beautiful phrases, how about this? As another way to say that commercials are coming, we pause for some entrepreneurial modules. And we return to Aaron McKean and to John Morse. Aaron McKean is senior editor for the new Oxford American Dictionary, also the editor of Verbatim, a wonderful journal or magazine, or call it what you will, but it's um, full of the play of the English language. And she is the editor of the new book, More Weird and Wonderful Words, Oxford University Press, the publishers, and John Morse, who's the president and publisher of Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. For a while, you guys were working for me in that uh, I am of the faculty of the University of Chicago, and the University of Chicago owned Merriam-Webster's. Well, the University of Chicago... Well, it owned e Encyclopedia Britannica, of which Merriam-Webster's is a division. Yes, yes. Um, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, which wholly owns Merriam-Webster, at one point was, in fact, owned by the University yeah. of Chicago. But no longer the case. No longer the case. Now owned by a private investor who um, has a great love for, for books, um, was very, uh, had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas when he was young and was mm -hmm. always smitten with them, um, has a strong philanthropic streak and interested in, in matters having to do with education and saw the opportunity to uh, own Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, so we are, we are now owned uh, by him. The new edition, the 11th of the Merriam-Webster Collegiate, uh, is mounted in a very different way from prior editions. Well, it does. I, it, it looks a lot like uh, prior editions as you go into the bookstore, but in fact, uh, what you'll find is that every print edition also comes with a CD-ROM in the back, and it also comes with a one-year uh, subscription to a brand new website that we have created that offers exclusive access to the text of the 11th edition. And what's really behind that is about 
the past eight years worth of experience we've had with online publishing. We've had a website uh, since 1996. It's become tremendously popular. Uh, people love to look up words on the web. And what we really discovered is that there was no real threat between electronic and print publishing, that uh, we don't live in a world of either or, at least for dictionaries. We don't live in a world of either or, where someone says, I either wanted electronic or print. We live in, in what uh, a, a designer in New York, Richard Saul Werman, has, has dubbed the age of also, where there's no one best way to do things, there are just many good ways of doing things. Uh, and no one wanted to give up their print dictionary, but people also wanted access to the electronic dictionary. So that's really, that was the vision that we tried to embody with this new edition. And all of this for the incredible price of? $25.95. That really seems quite reasonable. It is It is very reasonable. I, I, I would have to say that just in general, um, college-level desk dictionaries are one of the greatest bargains in American publishing. Uh, you get over 1,600 pages, you get 165,000 entries, you get millions of pieces of information, and you get it all for $25.95. The other thing you get, and this is something that, that I have discovered so much over the past several years, you get something that you will own forever. Mm -hmm. uh, the dictionary that you go through college with, the dictionary that you're given as a graduation present, is something that you will treasure and own for the rest of your life. And, and I really urge parents and uncles and aunts, uh, be part of that tradition. Uh, give a gift of, of a dictionary. And I'm just, I'm telling you, that is a, that is a book that will just be treasured. And, and I say it because I have met adults over the years, and they just tell me I, I couldn't part with the dictionary that I went through college with. There's another use for dictionaries. I'm sure you would both agree. They're great reading. Quite apart from the utilitarian search for the meaning of a word or a synonym for some word. Uh, just, you could take a dictionary to bed if you have nothing better to take to bed on a given night. And you could have a lovely time just scanning the pages and coming upon things that surprise you, things you know about, but you learn more about them. In a good dictionary, you find not only words, you find biographical entries, which are often quite fascinating. And we now plan our dictionaries to be browsable. We want, when you open the dictionary, to find something that you're enticed to stay a little bit longer mm -hmm. and maybe find something that you didn't know you were looking for. And if you have a really good dictionary, it's also a good thing to jumpstart creativity. Uh, a thing I like to encourage people to do is across the top of every page in every dictionary, there are things called guide words, and they tell you what the first and the last word on the page are. If you are stuck, open a dictionary, look at those guide words, and try and make a sentence with those two words, a sentence that makes sense. Uh-huh. It'll make you think about things in different ways. Um, I don't do this in the uns. It's, it's not as much fun in the un-words in, un in, in mm. you. But do it any other page, and you'll really enjoy it. A lot of teachers use that as For a example. classroom exercise. Two guide words? Yeah. Well, right now I'm only looking at an electronic page, but I can look at the the listing of words down the side and I see uh, cavalier and cave. So mm -hmm. can you think of all sorts of situations where well, cavalier... Well, cavalier entered the cave would be easy. Yeah. yeah, that's very simple. But if you have cavalier and a little bit down um, and cayenne... Cayenne. He was taking a two-cavalier approach applying the cayenne. <laughs> <laughs> he sneezed after yeah, taking a two-cavalier approach. No one wanted to eat his cooking. <laughs> I think people do 
to get to your point, enjoy reading the dictionary. And part mm-hmm. of it is, there's, I think there's a special magic about a dictionary. And, and the magic is, is the following. In very few parts of society do we allow the expert on a topic to speak or write unmediated to the general public. They have to go through a journalist or a popularizer. But in the field of dictionaries, you actually have at any given point, the world's expert on that one word who has just spent the past week or so learning everything about that word speaks directly to the user through a special kind of language we've developed over hundreds of years called the di- the definition. And the definition is kind of a stylized abstraction. I mean, in some ways, I think sometimes it may be hard to grasp. But is this convention that we as the English-speaking people have agreed to that allows the definer to speak directly to the user. And I think it's a wonderful experience. I think that that, that we can have that, that intimacy uh, with the expert and, and get um, uh, expert opinion coming uh, as a un, unmediated by someone else. And uh, I, I think people enjoy that experience. It is it's a slightly stylized form of, of language. Uh, but when it is good, when when the definer has really done the job right uh, mm-hmm. and and crystallized that meaning in five, six, or ten words and done it well, uh, there's a great feeling of satisfaction, I think, for the reader and for the definer. How would you define the common word monster without looking it up? Monster, M-O-N-S-T-E-R. Yeah. Well, the core sense... I think would be something that's horrible, usually mm-hmm. an entity that's horrible. And then uh, there's also the sense of things that are large or outstanding in some way. This brings up, a, I think, an interesting point about how different dictionaries go about defining. And I think John had a really good metaphor about how the the definer speaks directly to the person who's looking up a word. And it really drives home the importance of when you're buying a dictionary, don't just look for words that you don't know. Look for words that are favorites and familiar Mm -hmm. and see if that definition jibes with the one in your head. Because if you and the dictionary are congruent on all the points that are important to you, then you can assume that there will be a parallel congruence in other words that you may not already be familiar with and love. Mm-hmm. I ask about monster because I have before me Johnson's definition mm-hmm. of monster in the original uh, Johnson dictionary. And it's quite straightforward, but it has a certain terseness. And I wonder how you would judge the adequacy of this definition. Monster, something out of the common order of nature. Something horrible for deformity, wickedness, or mischief. I think that's a well-formed definition. Uh, what we try to do with definition is what we call, we, we place something in a genus term and then we attach differentia to it. And the genus term would be the, the, the category of meaning slightly bigger than the word you're defining. He's often just used something there, but then, then you begin to establish characteristics that differentiate that word from other words within his class. And, and I think that's, that's a nicely formed definition. Uh, I think he could probably get that uh, into any Merriam-Webster or Oxford dictionary. And then with regard to monstrous, uh, the adjectival form, he says deviating from the stated order of nature. Strange, wonderful, generally with some degree of dislike. And he illustrates it. His citation is, of course, from Hamlet. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, 
in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his conceit that from her very working all his visage wand. From that's uh, oh what a rogue and peasant slave mm-hmm. am I, says Hamlet after the player king has done his oration. Mm-hmm. It's that's a uh, I mean that's a very good use of monstrous to pull in there. The yeah. uh, d- dictionary defines have to do two things well. One is they have to crystallize meaning with with a well-formed definition. But the other important, sometimes even more important thing, is to find the apt usage example. Uh, whether it's just three or four words that puts the word in context or a whole quotation. One of the things that we've discovered on the web is that's what people want more of most in their dictionaries, more examples. Now, here's my invitation to you. We've got some commercials coming again. After that, let's for a few minutes play the the game of uh, dueling neologisms. Each of you can go to your separate recent editions and try to astonish us with some of the words and the definitions of those new words that you've come up with. And a little bit later, we will, of course, be going to the telephones. And now's the time to invite callers. The number, as ever, is 591-7200, For any uh, words you'd like to ask about, any, uh, any neologistic discovery that you want to put before our two lexicographers, and in general for a discussion of the language and the way in which it is changing. Issues of usage as well, and what is and is not acceptable, uh, are also part of what we're uh, about tonight. And so, uh, give us a ring right now if you don't mind waiting for just a few minutes. We'll be with you shortly. First, we go to uh, the booth for these messages and then for a quick update on the evening's news. With thanks to Andrea Darlis and my apologies for uh, being so eager to get to uh, uh, the trading of yet some new words that have made it into your separate dictionaries that I uh, forgot uh, that we had uh, the news waiting. But now, directly to it, with John Morrison, Aaron McKean, uh, you can dazzle one another with words from your new editions. <laughs> well, uh, or challenges, seeking <laughs> definitions. Hmm. How about uh, bubble tea? I've never drunk it. It seems really gross to me. But it's a, a sweet, frothy drink with tapioca beads in it. I would avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with that word at all. It's also called boba tea or pearl tea. You can get it many places in Chicago if yes. you actually want to drink it. Um, I mean, food terms are certainly one of the, the big sources of, of bringing mm-hmm. in new vocabulary. The other, uh, one of the other big areas, of course, is the whole area of, of business and finance. As and, for example? Well, dead cat bounce is my favorite. Dead cat? A dead cat bounce. Bounce. Uh, actually, it, it's where it goes mm-hmm. back to the 80s when we've also gone through a period of, of financial speculation. A dead mm-hmm. cat bounce is a brief and insignificant rise in a stock price after a long and steep decline. Uh, and it comes from the notion that even a dead cat would bounce if dropped from a sufficient height. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Continue to dazzle one another or challenge one another. We go on with dead cat bounce to say that it's usually caused by speculators buying in order to cover their positions. So they, they've they've agreed to uh, mm-hmm. sell or buy at a certain price. And you both got it in your separate volumes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, we have, uh, I'm looking at a list of words that are going to be included in an Oxford Dictionary later this year. Um, carbo-loading for a race. Carbo-loading? Yes. I would guess that means just eating a lot of starchy stuff. Mm-hmm. Typically There's before a race to increase your energy. Ah. Marathoners do it. Mar- oh, do they? 
Yeah, that makes sense. A yeah. plate of spaghetti before you do the... Uh, that's right, that's right. The long distance run. Mm -hmm. um, so a word that, we, that isn't going to dazzle anyone, except uh, I think it's interesting in terms of how quick it got into the language, is dot commer, which is just the, the word for someone who owns or works for um, a dot com. Um, the interesting thing there is, I believe our earliest piece of evidence is from 1997, and we made the decision in 2001 to add it to the dictionary. So there's a case of yeah. a word going from first coinage to into the dictionary in four years. A word in that category is certainly blog and uh, the related blogger and blogging as verb. Uh, I didn't know what that meant a year or certainly two years ago, and only uh, less than a month ago we did a program on blogging. We are considering blogosphere. Blogosphere is, is also... <laughs> In common use. Which mm -hmm, is just yeah. fun to say, really. I love it, yeah. In fact, we have entered the blogosphere with a blog of uh, Milt's file, oh. which is a regular feature on our website, but now we've also blogged it. <laughs> um, a, a personal favorite of mine is Ajita, uh, which is um, a feeling of, of, of anxiety uh, and worry. It comes from the Italian, um, uh, and it's from uh, actually a dialect form of Italian, uh, mm -hmm. meaning acid for acid indigestion. Uh, oh, so it doesn't. It it isn't a, a synonym or a related word to agitate. No, and you would think it was. And, I, and then yeah. the first time I heard people say agita, I figured, oh, that's fine. It's going to come from agitation. But yeah. no, it doesn't. It comes from as uh, a, 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 a Italian dialect term uh, for for the acid. Uh, for uh, sort of a heartburn feeling. I wonder if a cognate term is in the in French, the word angoisse is anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's just related also to our anxiety. Um, I, that could be. This particular word, we're really pretty sure it's going back to something like the word acid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a recent New Words book, we included the word co-sleeping and also the term family bed. Co-sleeping. This is a child-rearing practice where, yeah. while the child is an infant, the family shares a bed. Ah. So it, it, it's supposed to reduce the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. It makes breastfeeding easier. You don't have to get up in the middle of the night, all this sort of thing. Well, speaking of words that have to do with uh, people in bed, a word that once had a particular meaning in English and probably is quite archaic now, because the practice may be archaic, is bundling. That's mm -hmm. right. Do you know that word? Yes, I do. Uh, and you're right. I think you'd have a hard time letting, with having uh, parents let kids do much bundling these how, days. How does one define bundling? I, I think it was a, a social... Um, it was uh, a practice. A social practice. Um, and... Um, um, where I th people, I think, just got, uh, I think a, a young man and young woman got bundled up in, in blankets. Um, but they remained close. They remained close. It was, it yes. was a, a couple yes. who were courting, and they were allowed to go to bed together, remaining fully clothed. That's what our definition is, and we, we mark it as dated. Uh, to sleep fully clothed with another person, particularly during courtship, as a former local custom in New England and Wales. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. our example is he would dance at country frolics and bundle with the Yankee lasses. Uh. <laughs> I think you had to be in a cold climate for this to make a lot of I sense. I think it was to find out whether your future partner snores. Uh -huh. um, uh, a word, another one that, that I enjoy for a couple of historical reasons uh, is a new word coming in, dead presidents, which is a slang word uh, for money in the form of bills. And it is uh, a use that I think people associate particularly with uh, 
with the hip hop generation. Wasn't there a wasn't there a, a a musical group called the Dead Kennedys? I yes, I, mean, I don't <laughs> think this has anything quite to do with that. What it what it has to do with, it turns out, is a slang word that goes all the way back to the 1940s. So it's not the hip hoppers who invented. It's actually uh, jazz men in, in Harlem. Uh, had this as part of their jive slang in 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 Harlem uh -huh. as dead presidents. So it was a slang word that stayed in the language, but it uh, only used by a small number of people. It never made it into a dictionary because it just wasn't uh, commonly used enough. But somehow in the 1990s, the hip hoppers somehow connected with this tradition of, of calling money dead presidents, and it became well known enough in the past decade to get in the dictionary. It's so interesting how words and phrases migrate and alter their meaning as they go. Um, we did a program only last week, or, or well, uh, Monday night, I guess this week, on uh, rock and roll, the history of rock and roll. A Cornell professor has done a book on that. And I never knew until I looked at his book that rock and roll is an earlier term in black American speech, meaning essentially it's a synonym for sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they called the music rock and roll, that was the original meaning. Right, right. Um, it is interesting how, how these words sort of shift and change and, and persist in the language, sometimes for years in ways that, that, that we don't know. Mm -hmm. Another one like that this time is the word fat, P-H-A-T, which again is something that is that we associate with, with the hip hoppers, uh, but in fact we date that back to 1963. So it's been in the language um, uh, going back for, for 40 years, uh, but uh, sort of below the, the lexicographer's radar, um, not totally below, but sort of down in the weeds of the lexicographer's radar and really only uh, breaking out into, into popularity in the 90s. Words is the basic subject when it comes to the language, but also uh, style, form, grammatical and syntactic structures and so on are of great interest. Um, I offer you the following, something I love. I wonder if you, I won't tell you the author, but it's obviously uh, not a modern quotation. Um, it's uh, history. Um, the various modes of worship which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, and by the magistrate as equally useful. Isn't that elegant? You recognize Nicely that? Nicely done. No, I don't. But It couldn't be Bulver-Lytton, could it? No, it's given ah. from the decline and fall mm -hmm. of the Roman Empire. Remember this, it's, um, I think, the very beginning of the book. In the second century of the Christian era, the empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth and the most civilized portion of mankind. The frontiers of that extensive monarchy were guarded by ancient renown and disciplined valor. The gentle but powerful influence of laws and manners had gradually cemented the union of the provinces. Their peaceful inhabitants enjoyed and abused the advantages of wealth and luxury and so on. That's pure rhetoric in the good sense of the word rhetoric, in the, the careful construction of parallel forms, mm -hmm. the, the use of contrasting words to bring both, I think, both facets of meaning to, to prominence. Now, all of those words are words that would be found in your separate dictionaries, but oh, this certainly. way of combining them is somehow of an earlier time. And in fact, if you were an editor doing, running a good magazine uh, and you got prose of this sort, you'd probably go by the Fowlerian uh, or E.B. White 
standard or the Orwellian standard and decide it's got to be uh, simplified. I would hope not, and I think we do have some magazine editors who, who know how to um, let a good writer run when they have got that good sense, um, as Aaron is saying, of the rhythms of language, um, the sounds of the language, as, as, that, as that writer surely does. And um, I think there's some magazine editors that still let that happen, but you're right, we don't hear enough of that of carefully constructed prose. I think we live in an era where for perhaps understandable reasons, um, prose is more casual. Um, and from, from our political leaders and, and from our institutional leaders, I think there's a certain fear to rise to elegance like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's too bad. I think we, we've lost something when we don't hear language like that. Somebody once pointed out that Mike Royko wrote in a kind of Gibbonian mode, that he very often used triplets uh, as uh, ending a column with something like uh, only uh, a mafioso, a Cretan, or an alderman would believe that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, clearly Mike understood, again, the, the rhythms of language and, yeah. and how it came off the tongue. And I think he, some, he was writing by ear sometimes, yeah. and that's a very good way to write. Uh, commercials coming once again, and then right on to the phones. The phone number is 5917200. For anything you want to ask about the language, any words you want to check out, any new words that you want to urge upon our two lexicographer guests as requiring inclusion in the next editions of their separate uh, dictionaries. 5917200. I see at the moment one line is available. And if you're trying to reach us and you hit the busy signal, do certainly try again, especially after we say goodnight to some other caller. And if you are the user of English uh, off in, the, uh, uh, in Malaysia or in India and are listening to us on the Internet and want to pose a question or offer a thought, your best way to do it uh, would be via email, the email address extension 720, as one word, extension 720, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. So, whether by phone, 591-7200, or by email, we're ready for your contributions, and we'll get to them right after these words. And we will go directly to the phones and to the email uh, for your comments and questions to John Morse and Aaron McKean. Let me go first to email. Um, a basic dilemma built into our language, and here's a query about it. Is there any hope of a single word to solve the need for the necessary but awkward his or her? Uh, where we commonly use there uh, uh, ungrammatically. So far, no one has come up with a good solution for this. Uh, one would think that we might be willing to just embrace they or them in both a singular and plural. I, obviously, we, I mean, somehow we managed for you to, to do it. Uh, but obviously, I think a lot of people would find it odd. I admit I find it odd. It would be the logical thing to do, but since we're not going to do that, we're stuck. Well, what we used to do was use the male pronoun to represent person kind generally. Uh, uh, a person must remain true to his convictions. Right. I but now you can't do that. I think that's unlikely to gain wide now acceptance. Now it's a person <laughs> must remain true to their convictions. Or right. his or her. Or his or her convictions. We're in an uncomfortable place now. It's a shibboleth almost where half, roughly half the people here the they, the third person singular they, is being very wrong, and half the people see it as being very natural. Half the people hear a person must remain true to his convictions as being very wrong, and the other half think of it as very natural. I'm all in favor of they, and I use it 
really, all the time. You do. Well, if it was good enough for Jane Austen, it's good enough for me. Ah, uh, you've got a citation. Yes. From it is. <laughs> uh, I must get it up. And I know also that Shakespeare used it. But the third person singular they has been used for hundreds of years. This brings up something that I find very irritating at times, is that people expect language to be logical. But logicians actually have to use their own language because English is not very logical at all. And when people try and squeeze English into a kind of Procrustean bed that it will never fit in, it makes for uncomfortableness. Right. I mean, I think one of the ways I say English is not logical, but it's sensible. And I, th and I do think that, Aaron Wright, that the sensible thing to do would be to follow the precedent we did with you, that it can be both singular and plural, uh, and, and do the same with, with they or them. But as, as Aaron points out, that's going to annoy about half the people. So there's, well, there's no good answer. Well, après moi, la déluge. But I can't live with it. We go to the phones. And here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. I have a, a question uh, for uh, you, Milt, and your panel. And the, the broad question is, are we at a turning point in the history of the English language? Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, word origins. Um, I'm trained in science, and so I love the, the ancient words, logos from the Greek, and, and from which we get geology, biology, meteorology. You can pick those words apart and figure out their meanings. But now we have words in science that, uh, modern science, names of quarks, which seemingly don't make any sense. We have quarks called strange, up, down, beauty, charm, and, and you can't tell much about the quark from the word. Are we at a turning point in the history of the English language where we're, we're turning away from the, the ancient roots? Well, the quark types were named by their discoverers, uh, and, and they just did it for fun, sort of. I think we're always at a turning point in the English language. And perhaps, I think that the quark names are very apt because the quark is such an, an almost unknowable thing that to have all the different characteristics of it be vague and, and evocative rather than denotative. And quark itself, which physicist uh, did it, was named, uh, was borrowed from uh, James Joyce. Right, two quarks. Right. Right. Yes, two quarks for Mr. Mark or something, yeah. something like that. I mean, I, don't, I think the caller can probably respond to this better, but I have a feeling that the, what, what that Aaron is getting to a point here, which is that those words are particularly appropriate given the, the mystery of those elementary particles. And it, perhaps it just is no, it may not be where a turning point in language so much as a turning point of physics where uh, old language just simply isn't sufficient to some of the mysterious places that scientists are taking us. And, and you, you may be right. You certainly may be right. But, but another example, and, and again, are we at a turning point in the history of the language? If you read the U.S. Constitution, it's an absolutely beautiful document. So, so beautiful in the way in which it was crafted. Contrast that with modern political communications, and, and the contrast is, is just astounding. You know, I'm wondering if, if we lost something. We may have, but I think if we lost it, we lost it a long time ago. And we always we always lose and gain at the same time. Sir, thank you for the call. Thank you. Very glad to have heard from you. We go quickly to another on 591-7200. Hello, you're on the air. Are you there? Hello, hello? Um, yes, ma'am. Yes. My question is uh, more grammatical. I'm wondering if we're always going to be saying refer back 
and we have lose, lost the objective case. People are hesitant to use the word me, and they're always using I. There's a lot of hypercorrection. Give a piece of apple pie to I. <laughs> well, uh, instead of saying, he gave it to John and me, he gave it to John and I. And I, I think for a, for a while, maybe even a couple of decades, children were taught in school that it was not correct to talk about yourself all the time, not to say I, I, I. And they hypercorrected that to never using the pronoun even where it's appropriate. And I think refer back is, it's not logical. It's a little bit of an intensifier. And this, I think, falls under a theory that I've held for some time, which is that the more syllables that come out of your mouth in any particular statement, the smarter you feel you have been. <laughs> so if instead of saying refer, you say refer back, that's twice as long, so you must sound twice as smart. I also think that they just refer, it does not always necessarily carry the sense of back. I might refer a question right now to Aaron, and there's no back involved. Uh, so I think sometimes that back is useful to say which sense of refer uh, we're trying to go to. I think Aaron's quite right on, on the objective case. I think that is a hypercorrection. That's too many generations of children having their knuckles wrapped when they said, it's me, and being sold to say, it's I, which found sounds very uncomfortable. and. Uh, I think it gives people the willies about the word me. Right. We've got uh, the great uh, black spiritual, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Right, which sounds beautiful. Yeah, it, it's I, it's I, it's I, oh Lord, <laughs> doesn't work. No. Doesn't work at all. Harder to sing, too. Well, but also people are saying report back, and it's kind of like a double negative, and I guess it just sort of, it's like nails on a chalkboard at times. It can be, but I, I think, you know, I, w I would try to take a charitable view uh, when you hear this because I think people are trying to use that back as a way to clarify their meaning mm -hmm. and with some fear there's some ambiguity to the word report or refer. And yes, I think we could probably edit that sentence and make it a little bit more graceful, uh, but I would urge a charitable view of the person who's <laughs> using the language that way. Think of it as an opportunity to develop mm -hmm. patience. <laughs> or in other words, hang loose. And thanks for the call. Thank you. And quickly to another on 591-7200. There are now a few lines available. If you've been trying to reach us too quickly, try again, and you may well get through. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, another very interesting program. Uh, as always, the uh, a few a few quick comments before my question. Um, I had the college edition of the American Heritage Dictionary from the mid-'70s and was given the unabridged edition for my birthday this year. And under the word genius, I found that my newer American heritage, even though unabridged, did not list a quotation from John Hersey, which says, genius rearranges old material in a way never seen before. And I thought, if, if this older edition has other quotations that would be just as valuable, I'm not about to get rid of it. Addressing what you said before. Um, also, uh, Aaron talked about uh, how good writers can break the rules. I had a professor from Wales, Walter Davies, who said that uh, a good writer borrows other people's quotations. The best writers steal them. In other words, you forget where they came from. You think they came from the writer. And um, I, the, the question I wanted to address has to do with two linguistic patterns that have emerged in tonight's discussion 
Uh, one would be the tendency of words to shift from descriptive to evaluative meaning, and the other to shift from denotation to connotation. And these trends would both seem to me to relate in some way to uh, absolute versus absolutist or absolutism versus relativism. Um, and not that it isn't good for those shifts to happen, but what I want to ask the guests is whether there has been a greater frequency of words to shift that way in more recent history. Milt has often talked on this show about uh, our tendency toward uh, moral relativism in the modern day, and I wonder if we see evidence of that in uh, words even more often becoming uh, connotative rather than denotative. Well, can you illustrate your thesis mm. with reference to particular words? Um, not offhand, although I will, I will make this observation. Um, I don't know that uh, we have ever had, as frequently as we do now, the tendency to use the word comfortable or uncomfortable for every kind of disagreement from, I just don't happen to agree with that, to, I really think it's wrong. Nobody wants to... So many people do not wish to say anymore, I think that's wrong or that's incorrect. They want to say, I'm uncomfortable with that. And, mm -hmm. and the, the, the dialogue that I picture happening is one spouse says to another, I'm, I'm really not comfortable with your seeing somebody else while we're married. And the other partner uh -huh. saying, well, well, I'm almost completely comfortable with it, and I would be if you weren't uncomfortable with it. Well, that's, <laughs> that's well illustrated, and it's true. We don't very often directly confront disagreement and uh, an opposition to views. Instead, we, we, uh, we, we do uh, suggest there's a certain amount of uh, tension over yeah. it, but it uh, is tolerable. Yeah, this may not be entirely on point, but in fact, um, I, I heard a college president real recently comment on just that particular word, comfortable, uh, and maybe to a slightly different point, which is that we ought to put ourselves in positions of being uncomfortable, that, that this notion that we're supposed to be comfortable uh, may be a false one. And uh, that um, I think that goes to, to the caller's point that somehow uh, we do have a kind of relativism here that, that seems to be an egocentric one radiating outward, and we probably ought to be seeking our frame of reference outside of ourselves. And I'm feeling slightly uncomfortable with your way of pronouncing comfortable. Well, I'm from Phil <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia, and I, yeah. I and I wear that as as, as well as I can. <laughs> I think that this extension of meaning comes about because we we live in metaphor, and we enjoy hyperbole. So that I, I'm just looking at the word grotesque now. And we have in the New Oxford American Dictionary the core meaning of comically or repulsively ugly. But a lot of people call things grotesque with one of its subsenses that we have, meaning inappropriate to some kind of shocking degree. Um, so instead of it being grotesque facial malformations, it's a lifestyle of grotesque luxury. Well, now that's, also, that's almost a reverse of what I was just talking about, where a word that a word that once described something as hideous or as malformed now has taken on a moral connotation or at least a morality that is in the speaker's mind that this is intrinsically Well, the, mes well, the basic lesson, of course, is that uh, the uses and the subtle meanings of words are constantly shifting. Absolutely. And we're not really aware of that until people like you 
point it up for us. Right. I mean, the only way you pick some of this up, these are very subtle changes, to be constantly monitoring the language. People um, have to be reinventing their language all mm-hmm. the time to address the new social situations or moral situations that they find themselves in. These are good examples. And we are due for another quick pause for the usual reasons, and then right back to the phones and to the email. For phone calls, 591-7200. For email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And a, um, an email, interesting, ap- apophasis, or apophasis if you prefer, an old word, uh, the art of mentioning something while declaring your intention not to mention it, often exercised by politicians. For example, I will not speak of his countless misdeeds, or why even mention his disloyalty to the flag. I, the term must be a term in rhetoric that goes way back, is it? The first citation I can see in the Oxford English Dictionary is from 1657. So mm-hmm. we've been not talking about people while talking about them for quite some time. Yeah. Apothesis. Um, it's coming out of the, the Greek for, for denial, and uh, we're trying to, we are denying that we're saying it while we're saying it. it it's a great rhetorical device, quite commonly used by politicians, to be sure. 591 is the number. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, good evening. Uh, earlier in the show, you mentioned the word agita mm-hmm. as, a, as a discomfort. Uh, that was the theme song of a, one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Broadway Danny Rose with, uh, by Woody Allen. The theme song? Well, yes, it, 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 it played all through. The, the, this rather corpulent Italian singer that he was the uh, business agent for, yeah. that was his theme song. He danced around the stage singing, and he was rubbing his stomach and all. And, uh, and uh, the tune was played out all, all through it. Broadway Danny Rose. I don't know if you remember that. I know the film. I think it's a wonderful film, but I don't remember. Remember, remember the, 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 the Italian singer that he was yeah, sure. for? Well, when it, when it started out, that was, as you say, and, and that song was, was written by that fellow himself, the actor, who was, that's the only show he was ever in. Uh-huh. But, but uh, Ajita, and he was talking about, uh, you know, in, in, in about the food, and he was rubbing his stomach and all. But, uh, yeah, Ajita was the... Uh, as they say, and it was uh, it was written by him, and it was the theme song. And he was, that's, that's, in that song, he's complaining that he feels acidic. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And he was talking about his, you know, and the, the different kinds of food. And he was dancing back. And remember uh-huh. this fellow, and he he was dancing, but as they say, and and rubbing his, uh, you know, upper upper GI, uh, you know. It's a it's a heartburn area. <laughs> it's a it's a favorite word of our editor in chief. And whenever things start looking bad, and when I start bringing bad news into him, he just he hits that point in his in his midsection. He just goes agita. Really. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. There's a lovely word in Italian, uh, which I I like to use sometimes because there isn't quite an English equivalent. Uh, you speak of somebody who has a sort of a charismatic quality as having presenza. You can say he has presence, but presenza. Carries more of a. That's that's nice. You like that? I, I think maybe it will make its way into English. Yeah, it should. Five nine one seven two double zero. If you've been trying to reach us, do try again. Some lines are now available, and you are on the air. Good evening, Milt. It's a joy to uh, listen to this program tonight. And, it's a joy uh, for me to participate in it. Thank and, you. Uh, your uh, guest had mentioned uh, a little earlier in the show how some people just can't get rid of their college dictionary. Well, I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. And I have my fifth edition of the Webster's Collegiate that we used. 
publication date 1948. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you a story, Ben. I did a, a talk a, about a couple of years ago and about the uh, the Collegiate Dictionary and its roots back in, in 1898. And at the end of it, an old gentleman walked up to me and, and during, after the question and answer period, and he caught my eye and he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye. And he said, when I was going through school, we used the third collegiate. <laughs> oh, he's way ahead of me then. <laughs> No, he's way behind you. <laughs> well, uh, one thing that uh, I keep this for is just for the novelty of the fact that in this edition there had a new words section. And it's interesting to look back, uh, what is it, 55 years ago, and see what they considered to be new words and how we wouldn't think it was uh, new at any time. It is, you know, it's fascinating. Um, we looked at that uh, very much when the 100th anniversary edition came out and said, what were the hot new words in 1898? And the interesting aspect is that a lot of the topics are the same topics that we go to today. The biggest new word was telephone. So it was electronic technology just the way it is today, but also words from education. I think kindergarten was a big word in 1898. Uh, new kinds of foods, pretzel, I think, was was a new word. And it's, it's interesting that the kinds of concerns that we have really do have spanned the, the whole century. Well, as you mentioned, telephone in this one, uh, some of the new words have to do with television, telecast, That's teleview, right. televised. That's right. I mean, it's... <laughs> I wonder when video entered the vocabulary. I'm not sure. I, I was just thinking, though, I have a copy of the fifth edition of the Concise Oxford Dictionary that was my grandfather's, and he had very carefully noted on the flyleaf that bourbon was not included in this edition with an exclamation point. I don't think he could have ever conceived of someone not knowing what bourbon was. Uh, videos from 1937. Yeah, well, here it's included in the new word section. Right, right, which is not odd. I mean, it, often it will take... Um, five to ten years for a word to 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 uh, make its way into the dictionary. Did you just look up video? Yes. 1937. 1937, meaning television. Yeah, but television really wasn't commercially uh, available until 1939 at the New York World's Fair, and then of course it went into uh, uh, it went into the background during the war years right. and only really emerged after the war. Right. But a lot of that research was going on really yeah. before that stage. So oh, it's sure. not unusual that the word video might be from 37. Fascinating. The odd thing is the citation is from Printers, Inc. Monthly. You have to wonder why Printers, Inc. Monthly was talking about video in 1937. Uh-huh. That is puzzling. Sir, thank you for the call. You're welcome. Glad to have heard from you. Let's go quickly to another. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, Professor Rosenberg and guests. Yeah, my word or phrase is tit for tat. My mother being British, she uses it in an, in an entirely different way than commonly used. I wonder what your guests have to say about that. Yes, how interesting. What does, the, what does it originally mean, I wonder? Oh, trading one blow for another. Does she use it to mean hat? No, no, it's slightly vulgar. It, uh, it means to breastfeed as a reward for telling on your siblings. <laughs> I think she may have coined that one uh, on her own. I no, no, it's a well-known English really? uh, ner naughty uh, nursery rhyme. Oh. It's, it Maybe another caller could back me up. Anyone that was from my mother's in her 70s, so anyone from England, that's, it's almost, I'm positive. It's, it's a rather slightly rude, naughty meaning you've told on your siblings, and, and when you come back, they'll mm. ask you where you rewarded with uh, titty for tattling. Hmm. But, uh, well, now, the word T-I-T, -T, the word tit, has another meaning, obviously, and you're suggesting it has a different meaning in that original... Uh, 
Well, I, I think tit for tat is just sort of a poke for a poke. And, of course, what Aaron's referring to is in rhyming slang, uh, tit for tat rhymes with hat, and then it gets shortened to tit for. So tit for uh, becomes rhyming slang for hat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this must be a folk etymology, which is a story that sounds really, really great. And the better the story sounds, the less likely it is to be true. What etymology do you come up with? Because we have it in the Oxford English Dictionary as being apparently a variation of tip for tap. Um. And it's known a century earlier than the tit for tat uh, citation, which Mm -hmm. is from 1556. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks to the caller. And that reminds me that we've got an email here uh, that I... uh, raises an interesting question if I can quickly find it again. Yes, here it is. Where did the expression the whole nine yards come from? <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows? Nobody knows. That I think the it ring... has nothing to do with football, doesn't it? No. No. I, that was that was obviously people thought it might, but obviously in football you have to go ten yards, so yeah. that can't be it. <laughs> the, and people have come up with all sorts of odd notions that it's how many cubic yards are in a cement mixer and... The length um, of a strip of bullets for right. a, a Gatling gun... Uh, the length of material needed to make a kilt. All I can say is if you have heard a story about where Mm. the whole nine yards comes from, it has to be wrong because no one has a definitive answer. It may be unknowable. How long has the phrase been around? Um, We have a colloquial, we have it marked as colloquial, so there may not be an actual citation here that we have, but I can take a quick look. These stories are, I think, really, really interesting and fun these folk etymologies as you call them yeah and the thing is is that when people are confronted um we have a site here from 1970 um when people are confronted by these phrases that they think ought to have a good story well Mm. there are always people who will never let the facts get in the way of a good story so they just come up with nor should they necessarily yes along those lines the great eternal etymological mystery with regard to the American variant of English, is okay. Or is that now resolved? That is, I think, as nearly resolved as we can hope. Alan, um, Alan Walker-Reed uh, did a lot of research on this. Mm-hmm. And in newspapers, I'm trying to think when the time was, but it was... At the time of John Quincy Adams. It's yeah. the early 19th century. There was a period... Remember I just talked about fat, which is a, a fanciful misspelling, P-H-A-T. Well, that's not the first time people have just enjoyed having fanciful misspellings. If you go back to the early 19th century, they went through a period where they just like to spell things in funny ways. And they, they spelled all all correct, A-L-L-C-O-R-E-C-T, as all correct, O-L-L-K-O-R-E-C-T. And from that, the guess is that we got to OK. Because it also was a, a, an interest in, in initialisms. They liked initialisms and, and fanciful misspellings. And it was the coming together um, that OK probably was an initialism for all correct. And then it got reinforced by old Kinderhook, which was what, Martin Van Buren? Yes in his political campaign. So there was a nice correlation there between saying, okay, for all correct. Now, you're telling me you now have a scholarly consensus on this etymology? I think it is the reigning theory. I've never heard this all correct thing before. I think that's, uh, obviously a lot of people have speculated and you can't really prove these things, but that one feels like it's probably true. It's the least implausible of all the theories. And least implausible counts for a lot in etymology. 
quite um, to me it's a, a touch disappointing i would what why for the more <laughs> well i i have to admit i'm charmed by it and and the part i'm charmed by is again the playfulness of yeah. of and the fact that that playfulness has been part of the language for so long we must pause for the usual reasons a last quick stop for commercials and then right back to your calls on 5917200 and we will go directly and quickly back to the phones good evening hello yes um, I'm calling to ask, since you talk about electronic dictionaries, I'd like to know if you have one that speaks. Yes. Um, the ones that are, the, I'll, I'll tell you that the, the CD-ROM that's actually packaged with the book itself does not have audio, but the, the website that comes with the book does have audio pronunciations, and the CD-ROMs that are sold separately in mm. stores uh, have the audio pronunciations about a hundred thousand recorded uh, human human recorded pronunciations? Would you like to hear one? May uh, I? How would you do that? That's for the word magalog, mm -hmm. like a promotional catalog that looks like a magazine. It's oh. from the CD-ROM for the Shorter Oxford English Dictionary. Wonderful, and our thanks to the caller. Uh, time is short, and there's so much yet to be accomplished or to be negotiated. Quick and very interesting email question. Who created the term African-American? I don't think we can attribute it to one person. Uh, it it's very rare that you can do that with a for word. A, for a long time, they said Afro-American rather than African-American. And Afro-American is easier to say. Um, I think my sense is that African-American came to particular promise in the early 1980s uh, and that there were a number of, of spokespeople behind that, uh, but I think it was um, uh, taking advantage of a word that had been in the language earlier than that. So I think we might be able to point to the people who promoted it, but I don't think you can point to the people who originally uh, coined the term. I've got a hunch on this one uh, because I do remember being kind of startled by the usage as I heard it often pronounced by Jesse Jackson. I think he was one of the people who promoted its use, but I don't think necessarily the person who invented it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's an important research issue, which will have to be uh, uh, further studied and ultimately adjudicated. 591-7200. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Milt. Um, I've got a quick question. I, with all the soldiers coming back from the uh, Arab Arab world. Are we going to start seeing world uh, words coming in? One of my favorites is Inshallah, and you you also hear that in uh, Spanish, Ojalá, mm -hmm. meaning God willing or or that. Are, are we going to start seeing that, or are we already back sheesh, mordida, things like that? Inshallah is already in the New Oxford American Dictionary. I think it's in a lot of Kipling, so mm -hmm. that would explain it. Mm -hmm. um, there is a little fast food shack down the street from Miriam Webster's offices that is the Inshallah Tavern. So uh, <laughs> I think I think that is probably already... I've got an Arabic word but in origin, I think, which we've known uh, and used forever. Algebra. That's right. Is it not Arabic in origin? Oh, well, I mean, a, yes. a lot of words come, uh, a lot of the words with, begin with A-L, almanac yeah. um, and uh, uh, admiralty, I think, um, are, are words coming uh, in from 
uh, from Arabic. I mean, those influences, I think whenever we come in cultural contact with other peoples, and this goes back and really part of the richness of the English language to the period of exploration of the British Empire, uh, whenever we come in cultural contact with people, we do, English speakers are absolute magpies. We will grab words when we hear them and bring them back and use them in pajamas and ketchup or all kinds of words that, that have been brought back from our contacts with other people. Yeah, I find it uh, very interesting with the uh, number of soldiers coming back, picking up the slang. And right. I'll give you another good example. The Marines that went over to the Philippines in the early part of the 20th century uh, would have to go out on maneuvers towards the mountains, and the mountains were called the boondock. So whenever they were heading out towards the mountains, they were going into the boondocks, and they is brought the, that word back from the Philippines. It's is, the, is the word from Tagalog? Yes, the word is from Tagalog. Yeah. And, uh, and we brought it back to this country, and now it just feels as American of as course. apple pie to <laughs> head out into the boonies. But that was that was the American soldiers bringing that word back from the Philippines. Thank well, you, sir. Great. Thank you. Uh, quite fascinating. Um, borrowings of Anthrod are going on, of course, all the time. Yinglish is something that many people have studied. Yiddish words that have penetrated the English language. I think that those are particularly recognizable because so many of them start with that shma sound, like yeah. schmuck. Uh-huh. They have a kind of very recognizable consonant clusters. Right. That's one of the fun things you can do uh, with uh, the CD-ROM is to actually look for those and, and uh, do a search for uh, words that are, say, uh, functional label slang uh, and uh, etymology Yiddish and just see the rich source of do, Yiddish slang. Do you have in your separate dictionaries the words Schlemiel and Schlemazel? I believe so. Uh, you're, you're quickly pecking away at your, at your laptops. Yeah. Yes. What do you have? S-C-H, or maybe just S-H, Schlemiel. Yes, you're right. It's just the S-H. It's, it's an unlucky bungler or a chump. That's right. Uh, and it's been in English since 1892. Has it really? Well, a Schlemiel is indeed an unlucky bungler. And a shlemazel is a man to whom bad things happen. So it's always the shlemiel who spills the drink on the, uh, on the shlemazel. Aha, okay. We go back to the phones. 591-7200. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. I had a question. Um, several years ago, I was working in a first grade classroom, and we were teaching phonics to the kids. And <clears throat> I began to wonder, why do we have the letter C when it's taken on by the letter S and the letter K, the same sound? Elegant variation. Why questions are very tough for the history of English. It has had such a long and, and varied uh, history with so many different kinds of influences coming in. Every single letter of the alphabet has a story behind it. Uh, and it, it is not governed by logic or practicality. It's uh, really just some of these things are just the accidents of history. And also you have to remember that there was a period in English where spelling something the same way in the same document twice was considered to be the mark of an uneducated person because certainly anyone who had the least amount of facility with the English language could come up with two or even three spellings for something in a single document. Yeah, I think it was really only with the birth of the printing press that, that people started getting fussy about spellings. Our thanks to the caller, and time's almost out. A last query via email. President Clinton's press secretary insisted that bumfuzzled, B-U-M-F-U-Z-Z-L-E-D, that bumfuzzled is indeed a word. Any comment? I can't find it in any dictionary that I have. 
being a word is not dependent on being in the dictionary. Um, if you're not a purebred, it doesn't mean you're not a dog. Anything that a, a speaker of English uses as a word is usually a word. Have you heard the word bumfuzzled? I have heard the word bumfuzzled. What bum is it fuzzled? supposed to mean? I think it means to, to confuse or bewilder. And uh, I think that uh, Aaron's right. But you could have words kicking around in the language for years and years and years before we weary lexicographers necessarily catch up with it and get it in the dictionary. You remember in an old Frank Capra film with Gary Cooper? Was it Mr. Deeds Goes to Town or something like that? That there's a an etymological argument about the word pixelated. Two <laughs> ladies from the hometown say he's pixelated, and no one knows what that means. But what it means is he's possessed by pixies. Or drunk. Or drunk? Yes, I think pixelated is one of the hundreds of different uh, synonyms we have for the word drunk. Oh, really? I hadn't heard it in that sense. Just sort of crazy or a little bit eccentric. Uh, yes, uh, from the 19th century, meaning intoxicated. Ah. Well, then it has that meaning. Of course, that's there are probably more but the synonyms for that than for almost about anything else. Just about anything else. Uh, but but you're right to see it coming from pixie. That is part of its etymology. Mm -hmm. But and and originally somewhat unbalanced mentally or bemused, um, and then also becoming whimsical. Oh, well, there you are. We are out of time. Uh, it's been an absolute delight, and I thank you very much for joining us. Our guests have been John Morse, the president and publisher of the Merriam-Webster's Dictionaries and of the new uh, Collegiate, uh, now in its 11th edition, and Aaron McKean, senior editor for the new Oxford American Dictionary, and also the editor and proprietor of the new book, More Weird and Wonderful Words, published by Oxford University Press. We uh, will not be on the air tonight in all likelihood. That is tomorrow night. We've been on the air tonight, certainly, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. But tomorrow night, there is a rather important baseball game, uh, and on Monday, we return in full force talking about Chicago mayoral history with Lonnie Bunch of the Chicago Historical Society, uh, where they they just mounted a whole exhibit on Mayor Harold Washington, and Paul Green, Chicago political historian, joins us. That's what comes next week. Until then, thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night.